developed, created, and owned by James Pro Artistry Productions. You are now listening to the Perceptive Readers Podcast. Good day, everyone. And if you're listening to this podcast in the afternoon or evening, good evening. Due to the nice response from the uh, jumpstart of the Perceptive Readers uh, after a year break, we're going to just spend this introduction in under a minute, if I can. (laughs) Well, I will, because we're going to focus more on the Prince and the Pauper commentary series uh, because a lot of you uh, appreciated uh, that type of format. And so I'll use my extended comments on other subjects like the one that will be in the next podcast. Uh, I will save those uh, for that one. Uh, for example, the subject that we will talk about next time on the podcast will actually deal with Knowledge, And I just want to leave you with one quote before we go on to the Mark Twain's Prince and the Pauper commentary. Think about this. Knowledge empowers as long as it's what you need. Knowledge empowers as long as it's what you need. And we'll talk uh, more about this in a fun sort of way in the next podcast, but let us now go ahead and enjoy uh, this podcast on the Prince and the Pauper. And by the way, that quote comes from John Maxwell. Commentary opening Prince and the Pauper. Opening consideration. A child is born with a heart of gold. Poets, songwriters, and sages have pondered according to each gifted style of speaking and writing statements. When that child is born, whether the parents had prepared for the child's arrival or the child's announcement turned out to be a surprise, surprise, the mother and father realize a privileged responsibility. It is up to them to keep that child's heart in a gold, innocent state. Whatever the environment may be, from the poor to the rich, We can see early on what the child's personality is growing towards, how brightly the child's heart will continue to shine. Did you know mendicancy is the practice of begging for money or food in the streets? See how it is used in Chapter 2. Tom's Early Life Let us skip a number of years. London was 1,500 years old and was a great town for that day. It had a hundred thousand inhabitants, some think double as many. The streets were very narrow and crooked and dirty, especially in the part where Tom Canty lived, which was not far from London Bridge. The houses were of wood, with the second store projecting over the first, and the third sticking its elbows out beyond the second. The higher the houses grew, the broader they grew. They were skeletons of strong, crisscross beams, with solid material between, coated with plaster. The beams were painted red, or blue, or black, according to the owner's taste, and this gave the houses a very picturesque look. The windows were small, glazed with little diamond-shaped panes, and they opened outward on hinges like doors. The house which Tom's father lived in was up a foul little pocket called Ophir Court, 
out of Pudding Lane. It was small, decayed, and rickety, but it was packed full of wretchedly poor families. Canty's tribe occupied a room on the third floor. The mother and father had a sort of bedstead in the corner, but Tom, his grandmother, and his two sisters, Beth and Nan, were not restricted. They had all the floor to themselves and might sleep where they chose. There were the remains of a blanket or two and some bundles of ancient and dirty straw, but these could not rightly be called beds, for they were not organized. They were kicked into a general pile, mornings and selections made from the mass at night for service. Beth and Nan were 15 years old, twins. They were good-hearted girls, unclean, clothed in rags, and profoundly ignorant. Their mother was like them, but the father and the grandmother were a couple of fiends. They got drunk whenever they could, then they fought each other or anybody else who came in the way. They cursed and swore always, drunk or sober. John Canty was a thief, and his mother a beggar. They made beggars of the children, but failed to make thieves of them. Among, but not of, the dreadful rabble that inhabited the house was a good old priest whom the king had turned out of house and home with a pension of a few farthings. And he used to get the children aside and teach them right ways secretly. Father Andrew also taught Tom a little Latin and how to read and write, and would have done the same with the girls, but they were afraid of the jeers of their friends, who could not have endured such a queer accomplishment in them. All over court was just such another hive as Canty's house. Drunkenness, riot, and brawling were the order there, every night and nearly all night long. Broken heads were as common as hunger in that place, yet little Tom was not unhappy. He had a hard time of it, but did not know it. It was the sort of time that all the Ophircourt boys had, therefore he supposed it was the correct and comfortable thing. When he came home empty-handed at night, he knew his father would curse him and thrash him first, and that when he was done, the awful grandmother would do it all over again and improve on it. And that way in the night, his starving mother would slip to him stealthily with any miserable scrap or crust she had been able to save for him by going hungry herself, notwithstanding she was often caught in the, that sort of treason, treason and suddenly beaten for it by her husband. No, Tom's life went along well enough, especially in summer. He only begged just enough to save himself, for the laws against menitacy were stringent and the penalties heavy. So he put in a good deal of his time listening to good father Andrew's charming old tales and legends about giants and fairies, dwarfs and genii and enchanted castles and gorgeous kings and princes. His head grew to be full of these wonderful things, and many a night as he lay in the dark on his scant and offensive straw, tired, hungry, and smarting from a thrashing, he unleashed his imagination and soon forgot his aches and pains in delicious 
picturing to himself of the charmed life of a petted prince in a regal palace. One desire came in time to haunt him day and night. It was to see a real prince with his own eyes. He spoke of it once to some of his awful court comrades, but they jeered him and scoffed him so unmercifully that he was glad to keep his dream to himself after that. He often read the priest's old books and got him to explain and enlarge upon them. His dreamings and readings worked certain changes in him by and by. His dream people were so fine that he grew to lament his shabby clothing and his dirt, and to wish to be clean and be better clad. He went on playing in the mud just the same, and enjoying it, too. But instead of splashing around in the Thames solely for the fun of it, he began to find an added value in it because of the washing and cleansing, cleansing it afforded. Tom could always find something going on around the Maypole, in Cheapside, and at the fairs. And now and then, he and the rest of London had a chance to see a military parade when some famous unfortunate was carried prisoner to the tower, by land or boat. One summer's day, he saw poor Anne Askew and three men burned at the stake in Smithfield and heard an ex-bishop priest a sermon to them which did not interest him. Yes, Tom's life was varied and pleasant enough on the whole. By and by, Tom's reading and dreaming about princely life wrought such a strong effect upon him that he began to act the prince unconsciously. His speech and manners became curiously ceremonious and courtly, to the vast admiration and amusement of his intimates. But Tom's influence among these young people began to grow now, day by day, and in time he came to be looked up to by them with a sort of wondering awe as a superior being. He seemed to know so much, and he could do and say such marvelous things, and withal he was so deep and wise. Tom's remarks and Tom's performances were reported by the boys to their elders, and these also presently began to discuss Tom Canty and to regard him as a most gifted and extraordinary creature. Full-grown people brought their perplexities to Tom for a solution and were often astonished at the wit and wisdom of his decisions. In fact, he was become a hero to all who knew him except his own family. These only saw nothing in him. Privately, after a while, Tom organized a royal court. He was the prince. His special comrades were guards, chamberlains, equerries, lords and ladies in waiting, and the royal family. Daily, the mock prince was received with elaborate ceremonials borrowed by Tom from his romantic readings. Daily the great affairs of the Mimic King Kingdom were discussed in the Royal Council, and daily his Mimic Highness issued decrees to his imaginary armies, knaves, and viceroyalties, after which he would go forth in his rags and beg a few farthings, each his poor crust, eat his poor crust, take his customary cuffs and abuse, 
and then stretch himself upon his handful of foul straw and resume his empty grandeurs in his dreams. And still his desire to look just once upon a real prince in the flesh grew upon him day by day and week by week, until at last it absorbed all other desires and became the one passion of his life. On January day, on his usual begging tour, he tramped despondently up and down the region round about Mincing Lane and Little East Cheap hour after hour, barefooted and cold, looking in at cookshop windows and longing for the dreadful pork pies and other deadly inventions displayed there, for to him these were dainties fit for the angels, that is, judging by the smell they were, for it had never been his good luck to own and eat one. There was a cold drizzle of rain. The atmosphere was murky. It was a melancholy day. At night, Tom reached home so wet and tired and hungry that it was not possible for his father and grandmother to observe his forlorn condition and not be moved. After their fashion, wherefore they gave him a brisk cuffing at once and sent him to bed. For a long time, his pain and hunger and the swearing and fighting going on in the building kept him awake. But at last, his thoughts drifted away too far. Romantic lands, and he fell asleep in the company of jeweled and gilded princelings who live in vast palaces and had servants salaaming before them or flying to execute their orders. And then, as usual, he dreamed that he was a princeling himself. All night long, the glories of his royal estate shone upon him. He moved among great lords and ladies in a blaze of light, breathing perfumes, drinking in delicious music, and answering the reverent obeisances of the glittering throng as it parted to make way for him, with here a smile, and there a nod of his princely head. And when he awoke in the morning and looked upon the wretchedness about him, his dream had had its usual effect. It had intensified the sortness of his surroundings a thousandfold. Then came bitterness and heartbreak and tears. Now that you have read chapter 2 of The Prince and the Pauper, keep this in mind as a correction. The reader or narrator, yours truly, said the word princeling when it should be pronounced princeling. Again, the reader pronounced it princeling, and it should be princely. Princeling wanted to give you this correction. Moving on to people to remember. Think about their names and station in life. Where did Tom and his family live? Tom Canty, John Canty, Beth. Name, Father Andrew. Think about their names and station in life. Where did they live? Allow me to share a thought. Mark Twain was a humorist. This means he used his writing craft to motivate you into laughing at life's situations. 
His sense of humor at that time shows us the value of a lighthearted or in some cases, well-intentioned, amusing thought. You have just listened to the Perceptive Readers Podcast. Remember, until next time, if you read something that encourages you to improve or enhance your life for the better, it becomes your reality.